Good morning, everybody, and welcome to this, the sixth episode of Fencing by the Book, the podcast where we take a, a deeper look at the early Lichtenhauer longsword sources. Joining me today are Johanna Hopfgardner, Michael Chidester, Stephen Cheney, and TQ. And I'm your host, Michael Smoridge. So, what have we been up to in the last couple of weeks since we last did a recording? Uh, Johanna? Oh, no. Okay. Um, I haven't really done anything humor-related at all, um, but I've been working a lot on my general fitness, so I'm trying to stay fit without actually training HEMA. My club has started to train again, which is really cool, but I'm not with them, so I can't train. But I'd love to train again, and I really can't wait. Yeah, so not, not really much. Okay. I should also say happy birthday from yesterday. All right, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and Michael Chidester? Uh, well, work never stops on Wicked Hour. I spent the past few weeks cleaning, well, the past week or so, cleaning up the Andre Lignitzer and Martin Huntfeldt articles and revising all the transcriptions and Stephen Cheney actually gave us a nice translation of the Hundfeld's mounted section, which is now on there. And I've also been playing around with visualizations of collation diagrams, which is a purely visual thing that I'm not sure I can even describe on the podcast here, but I've made some Facebook posts about it. But trying to illustrate the way a manuscript is put together as a way of understanding a little bit more about it and how it was created. So the pages are bound together into what are called gatherings or choirs of like usually three to five double-sided or if you picture two pages attached together in the middle and they're folded and each one of those gatherings is sewn into a book. And that's how we make books even today. Um, but looking at the bizarre ways in which these manuscripts break the usual conventions where some of them have as many as 11 gatherings in a single choir. Other times it's a single double leaf that's sewn separately from the rest. And you can get a better idea of where missing pages fell in, but also of maybe the design process that went into the manuscript. And that's really interesting with things like 3227A, which is sort of a scrapbook. And you can start to see the, the thought process that went into putting the book the way it is and why some of the pages are the way they are. So, and I've been, and that's based a lot on what Daniel Jacquet's already been working on and some other researchers. And I've been doing a Wichtenauer version of all that, done about five or six manuscripts so far. Brilliant. Which you can view and actually understand what I'm talking about if you go on the wiki. Great. Thank you very much. Uh, Stephen? So, two things. First, I um, took a look at the Dresden gloss, which is a. Um, a very short uh, fragment of a gloss in the uh, Dresden uh, manuscript, which has a copy of Ringek in it. And I hadn't really looked at it before, so I went through and I did a translation of it, and it's really interesting. It gives like the author's opinions on some more detail of like some of the stuff from the regular glosses. And the second thing I did was I went back and looked at the um, the record of the Marksbruder from the Hans Madelfeisch book, which gives uh, records of who, well, um, who was the captain of the guild and um, a lot of times who was elected 
as uh, master or who was given the rank of master between the years of 1490 and uh, 1566. And the interesting, probably the most interesting thing uh, from that was uh, 1539, there were two uh, royal people. There was a, um, a Margrave and a uh, Duke who became masters of the Marx Bruder. And I believe T and Michael uh, tracked down their Wikipedia pages. And the one guy who was a, a Margrave or an elector, um, on his page it says he was at a um, imperial diet in 1539, which kind of uh, corroborates that he would be in the, or imperial diet in Frankfurt, which corroborates that he would be in the right place at that time. So I thought that was pretty cool. Sweet. And at least one of them was quite young, weren't they? Yes. The, uh, the Margrave was 34 and the Duke was 18. So, but we don't know if that's... 18 years old and a master. Right, yeah. We, we don't really, like, it's, it's tough to say if that's typical because they might have been given special treatment of some kind. For sure. If a Duke walked into my club, I probably would give him special treatment. <laughs> Especially if he pays big, big membership fees, right? And also, you know, if it's it's also unclear if it was typical for royals to do it, or if these two just happened to be in Frankfurt when the Marx Brüder were convening and said, you know, it would be hilarious if we just went and became fencing masters and did it. Yeah, there's there's no other royals uh, specifically stated in this record. So, so hang on a second. Does this mean that during the time that Longsword fencing was a bourgeois sport and hobby. That's when royalty and knights were doing it? Uh, maybe. <laughs> doing what now? I, I don't know. I, I, I don't, there's not too many conclusions that we can really draw from it because there's not very many data points. But yeah. I'm, I'm just winding you up. Gotcha. Uh, Tiki, what have you been up to? Um, not that much email related. I've been exploring a bit um, with an idea I have to try and illustrate a gloss in a style similar to the way the Power and Faint um, books are illustrated. Uh, so these are printed with woodcuts uh, illustrations and set up where you have two, uh, a, there's a series of left side figures and a series of right side figures, and they just pick a left and a right and put them together to make the play. Um, and so I'm trying to work out trying to think through the glosses and work out which little set of figures I could use to create an illustration for a full gloss on that line. And I also want to just mention, although it's not really something I've been working on here, uh, the idea that uh, manuscripts are not, are not the same as books, um, and not all fencing books are manuscripts. In particular, Meyer is printed and therefore not a manuscript. It's only a manuscript if it's handwritten. Try and be accurate, people. Technically right is the best kind of right, too. Damn straight. <laughs> Uh, I haven't been up to very much in the last couple of weeks, so I've had non-fencing stuff on, although I am off fencing in, uh, as soon as we're done recording this podcast. I think there's been a couple of discussions in the HEMA Discord, so Jack Gassman pops in after dropping me a message, and he had mentioned that Zeka, is it Zeka, the tag hits? Well, well, Jack's point was that in certain regional dialects in the south of Germany, it can be uh, insult for sort of bullying. <laughs> uh, it, it derives from a kind of like a billy goat, doesn't it? But this yeah. kind of 
nasty behavior but it's so, also not yeah go, go ahead Johanna okay um I think it was it was Zecklin or the Zecklin was um old high German for a baby goat is there a better word for baby goat uh doesn't matter a baby goat and <laughs> we even nowadays we still use like um not exactly Zecker but Zecker um for um, usually female annoying people <laughs> Yeah, it's, so, it's quite a, yeah. a gendered insult that brought in a bit more discussion, didn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So shout out for Jack for getting in touch with us with that one. Um, also on the Discord, I got into discussion with Yabe from Stockholm about when in Lichtenhauer Longsword you're aggressively closing to grapple because I'm always a fan of throws and he was, and his point of view was that in the longsword section, you're only told to grapple reactively, and we had a... I'm sure that's one we'll unpack uh, significantly more as we get down to those plays. Yeah, and then I spent the rest of the week supporting Yave and the Spiff guys in Stockholm by downloading Imperata and playing video games that they make. <laughs> so that was my contribution. <laughs> uh, anything else that people want to bring up at this stage, or should we dive into the text? All right, sweet. Uh, Shall we start off with the German? Johanna, could you give us the the next few lines in the original? Yes, of course. Okay. So it is. Wer dir oberhaut, zornhau ort dem draut. Wird es gewahr, nimm oben ab, ohne fahr. Bis stärker wieder, wind, stich, sich das, nimm es nieder. Brilliant. Thank you very much. And Steve, how does Harry give that in English? All right, as always from Harry R's book, Peter von Danzig. Who cuts from above in any way, the Zornhaus point keeps him at bay. If he wards and fends it off, be fearless, take it off above. Turn and thrust if he holds strong so, if he sees that off, take it down below. Sweet, thank you very much. So we'll probably go through this couplet by couplet that's because there's a lot to unpack here this is when we really get into the meat of the system isn't it when i was working on my own little personal lev translation this is when i got properly stuck for the first time and you guys <laughs> helped me out when the the german language totally bamboozled me <laughs> so the first two lines whoever overhews you Wrath's view point threatens him. So, uh, gloss mark the wrath view breaks all overhues with the point, and yet nothing yet is nothing other than a simple peasant strike and drive it thus. When you come toward him with the pre fencing, if he then hews at your head from above on his right side, then hew also with him wrathfully from your right side from above without any parrying on his sword. If he is off on the and shoot in long point straight before you and stab him in the face or the breast. Thus, set on him. So the, the bit I really got stuck with with the German was the without, without any parrying. Uh, which is on all the setting, on all the setting. On all the setting. Classic. Yeah. And, it, and it's a, a little um, a little instruction where uh, on all means with all? Is that what it means? Without any. Without well, it means without any, but literally it means with or without. 
So a lot of times um, they write an, which is modernized as ona, O-H-N-E, but they write it as O-N or A-N sometimes. So it gets a little bit confusing because there's another word on, which is, which is another uh, preposition. But it's pretty clear here that, that they meant uh, ona without. I don't remember the, the German for, for all of the uh, versions. Yeah, okay, so Lev says O-N, so it clearly, um, it's pretty clearly without in, in Lev. But anyway, um, this this is has become a bit of a notorious little phrase here, without any pairing or without any uh, frisetzung. And one of the reasons is there's two senses of the word uh, frisetzung. Uh, given in the gloss, there's the parrying sense, and then there's the sense of the fearfrizetsen, which are the four attacks against the four guards. And one possibility is it's telling us to um, go in and and not do any parrying action or not make any action in our defense, just do the thing. And the other possible sense is that it's not like the other fearfrizetsen. It's not a frizetsen, so you're not using it as an attack like an initial attacker or, or um, anything in, in the way that all the, the, the four other of the five hues are all used as initial attacks in the Fear for Zutzen. Does anybody else want it? Okay, so you're not flashing them out. I was going to say, uh, there's a third possible reading, which I've heard from a couple of people. I think Christian Schroskler, but if he hasn't said this, then, you know, I'm, I can't remember offhand exactly who says this or not who said this or not, but you can potentially read it as um, without, uh, basically without any moving, so without moving your feet, unlike the previous stuff, you you cut in place, uh, so you're not moving yourself around, you're not versetzing, like moving yourself, misplacing yourself, can actually just about be justified as an interpretation. Okay, so that, that allows you to read this as a parry repost action? Well, as a, as an act, as a firm-footed action instead of a stepping cut. Okay. Oh, yeah. Uh, just a... I was going to say, my perspective on this um, has changed in the past couple of years, and I think it has a very specific purpose there, which is establishing continuity with the general instructions. So, And I think it's, re it's trying to refer back to the play um, in which you cut near to your opponent and threaten with the... and keep your point in front of his face, and it says your opponent will respond in um, in one of two ways, uh, with two different parries, and now it's tr it's trying to open up the paradigm by giving you a third option that's a non-parry option. To what if if you're attacked in that way, instead of parrying in a way that can be exploited with the Zekrur, you can instead do it Zornhau. Um, so it's just sort of using the word Fazetsen to call back to the previous play that involved parries, and now it's giving you the opposite side of that equation. And then the opposite side of the Zornhau comes back again when we get to the very end of the of the gloss with the Spreck Fencer and Long Point. Um, but this is it, it sort of forms the basic exchange that gets played with um, off and on throughout the rest of the text. So you go with the you go with the idea that he's talking about actually parrying and not parrying. Yeah, well, I, I think he's he's not specifically giving you an instruction of don't parry, but he's saying. This is the non-parry option for this situation. Gotcha. Like if we, if you do the last thing and parry, you're going to get hit like this. So this is what you do to not parry and not get hit. Yeah. 
because you don't want to stand there. So what's the what's the solution to the problem that we just learned? The solution is the Zornhow. Okay, and it's also kind of setting up a bind that the author can then use to talk about bind work. Right, because when one person does the general instruction attack and one person performs the Zornhow, then all of a sudden all of the basic winding techniques that are going to appear over and over again can start showing up. So he's giving you the context of this is the most basic kind of bind. And here are the basic winding actions that arise from it. Cool. So uh, my my take on on this line, which I've I've come to fairly recently, I I've kind of ruled out the idea of it not being a like a frizzetzing in in the uh, in the sense of an attack, because uh, for two reasons. First, the Latin version uses the word uh, defensiona for this part, and um, it could be translated as without any defense. Um, I think Kendra was had, had a different idea on it yesterday, as in um, shifting your defenses into place as as you do this. But either way, the um, the result is is pretty similar in my mind. So that would be Kendra Brown who's working on a translation of the Latin version of Yudlev that was translated for Paul Sechtermeyer. Right. Sorry. No. No. no um, so uh, the second thing that I I've been thinking about is the Dresden gloss, which it seems like it's referencing this line in, in the third paragraph of the Dresden gloss. Uh, it says, you may only perform the wrath point. Uh, if someone strikes upon you, you may also only perform the wrath point well in it. Um, and you have also parried when you correctly perform it. So it seems to be saying that when you do the wrath you it's like it's giving you all the defense that you need without adding any extra parry movement to the action so that's that's been my take on it is that it means parry in the sense of actual parry cool i i think it, it doesn't say that you're not supposed to parry or at all because it does tell you to to target his sword um at least to some degree so he says, um, I, I'll need to find an English version, so... Yeah, uh, on his sword. Yeah, go on his sword, but also um, on his head. So you're supposed to go to his head as well as to his sword. And as Steve said, um, if you do it correctly, it's also some sort of parrying because you successfully went on his sword. So I... I don't get the an um, satsung so without any pairing part that much yet. Um, but my take is that it does tell you to target both the sword and the open. Well, but it tells you to target the head with the point, not with the edge. One of my personal theories around some of this and a bunch of other stuff is that in general, I tend to read Versetsen as kind of an idea of something being placed wrongly or mispositioned. So if you're versetting somebody else, you're forcing them into a bad position. You're pushing them like into a, a bad place. And when it's telling you not to versets here, what it's kind of saying is don't let your sword like swing off wide or whatever. You know, keep it centered and controlled, because other you know you 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 cut against their cut uh, with your point in this particular position and without on their sword, but without versetting, without like oversweeping and letting your sword swing off to the side, because okay. if you did that, you'd have misplaced your blade. And can kind of confuse your blade, and that kind of, that sort of sense of versets can actually is actually pretty consistent with a lot of the uses of it. 
offensively, a lot of the stuff described as resetsing is kind of pushing someone out of a position or flushing them out of position or generally like creating a situation where they have to move in a way that makes their position worse. And defensively, a lot of this, you can, you can read some of what you're warned not to do is not to like, you know, you don't parry in a way that means your sword is misplaced and out of position. So you can't do a, another action from there. Right. And that comes back to like the Jess Finley uh, hunting language as well, doesn't it? Well, the hunting phrasing of it would be flush. Um, so we'll probably come on to this later in the podcast uh, series. But the idea in hunt or an idea in hunting is that you versets prey out of a lair. You you f- like you you flush or you beat your game out of its lair so that you can hunt it. Um, it also interestingly means ambush in hunting uh, when it's written as vorsets, which is uh, an interesting parallel as well. Uh, but I'm sure we'll come back to that in a few weeks. Something I find interesting about the Zornhau, the very beginning of the Zornhau here, is that it tells you to cut from your right shoulder uh, in Ringek or just from above on the right in the rest, but it doesn't tell you to cut from a named position. Yeah, and this is something that we see quite a lot, isn't it? It doesn't talk about Vom Tag, it's just from your shoulder or from above your head. Yeah, there's actually very, very little presence in the glosses of describing actions from one of the four named positions and even less of an incidence of describing an action moving into one of those positions or through one of those positions that's an idea we see discussed a lot in hema and we touched on it a bit last week like you know would you need to teach the guards first um before you can teach someone the zorn how and the answer like if you read this outright a lot of people will say oh well i need to teach someone von tag if in order to show them this place so they know where they start from but the text doesn't say to start from von tag it says to start from the sword up by your right shoulder. So if you just tell someone, put the sword by your right shoulder, they're in the right position to start. I think, I think the idea of, of cutting through guards and cutting from one card to, guard to another is kind of um, spillover from other systems. Very much like, so. Know, like, it's definitely in Meyer. Yeah, it's in Meyer, and it's in like uh, some Italian systems. I think Fiore tells you to cut to Cingale or whatever. Yeah, potentially. I'm not an expert in that side, but it's definitely it's something which is a lot less present in the early Lichtenauer glosses than people assume. And this is one of the first like nice clear examples of that not being there. Uh, Fiore, I don't think ever specifies uh, which guards, but he describes all of his attacks as going from guard to guard. So from that, we conclude that his 12 guards are the positions that we're going from one to another when we attack. Um, he doesn't explicitly ever say, you know, this strike begins in Posta di Donna and ends in Posta Longa, he, uh, he leaves that to the reader, if that's his intent. But he does le- talk about going from guard to guard quite a bit. It was a mistake for me to bring up Fiore. I apologize. Meyer definitely does have some material where, you, uh, where he frames a movement in terms of starting in a guard, mid, like moving through a guard and finishing in a different guard. Um, right, and I think Meyer does it to establish sorts of solo drills of cutting forms more than anything else, where there practi- there's combinations you can practice without input from an opponent, necessarily. Perhaps. He does describe stuff this way in what appear to be paired exercises, or at least are presented yeah. as paired stuk. So who knows exactly why he's doing it. Speaking of Maya, I, I wanted to bring up another difference between this early KDF approach to the Zorn, Howe, and Myers, which is, to the best of my knowledge, in these early glosses, 
the Zorn how is only ever done to as a response to an incoming attack. You never just walk up to somebody and Zorn how them. It's always done as a reaction. Is that right? Yes, is the short answer. Uh, um. <laughs> and in, in contrast, I think that uh, Maya Mayer has it as more of a a proactive thing. It's just one of his cuts. Johanna, you know a little bit more about Maya than I do, and maybe even T. No, I'm just I am just wearing puffy pants because I like them. Um, <laughs> I'm really not a Maya fencer. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, back to T then. So I think that uh, the interesting thing about Meyer is he, 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 unlike, well, so the first point is that these glosses don't give us default cuts. There's not a lot of emphasis on what an Oberhau is um, and so on, whereas Meyer, every cutting line, every sequence of guards that forms a cut has a separate and distinct name. So he's much more terminology focused than any of these texts are. And so he he ha, he he prescribes eight cutting lines and gives each line a particular name. So the Zorn line is a 45 degree angle line from above to below. And then the Zorn how is the cut in Jochemeyer, the cut that follows that line beginning in Zorn Hoot, the, the Zorn how guard going through a long point and ending in Vexelhut, which is a low guard with the point to the side. So he's very much specific about these details of what your sword exactly is doing and what positions it's passing through and, and all that, whereas the glosses don't include any of that information and we could possibly conclude don't really place value in that information um, because not, not the, the closest we ever get to a cutting line described is the idea of starting from above and ending in front of the left foot, which is open to interpretation. Um, and beyond that, it gives sort of some vague directionality of where cuts are going. And that's about it. Even the these named hidden strikes rarely come up outside of the specific teaching about them. There's not a lot of cases of your opponent comes at you striking at Zornhau, striking at Krumpau, except it wants to give you a counter. So they're not they're not given as the basic building blocks of fighting. They're given as specific techniques that are designed to teach you things. Does that make sense? Yeah. I've got to say, one of my personal bugbears is uh, spending too much time focusing on getting the form just right of very basic fencing actions. Where what we're told about the Zornhau is it's nothing more than a simple peasant strike. It's what comes to you when you're angry, right? And I'm sure that... Can we talk about that for a minute? Yeah, absolutely. Go ahead. I'm just off on a tangent. Go ahead, Michael. Uh, I think peasant strike is something we meant to talk about. Uh, but if other people want to chime in, I don't want to monopolize this. But it's worth pointing out that um, the phrase schlecht Pounschlag sounds like it means even as, even maybe a bad peasant strike. But uh, Schlecht also has the meaning of straight. Um, so there's a theory that I believe I got from Christian Trostclair that the whole Rathew name, Zornhau, and the bit about peasants is meant to sort of be a bit of misdirection, again, with the idea of secret names. Because what they actually want to convey is it's a straight cut. So, but, and then when you compare with the Krumpau, which has lots of different meanings, but one of the meanings 
is crooked. Um, it also means curved and it also means morally unfit and it means um, bent and a lot of other things like that. But crooked and straight are meant to form a pair and they're both sort of nested into the meaning of these two cuts. So what they're, what they're trying to convey is not that it's a, a uncontrolled giant swing of a sword, but that it's a straight cut. Yeah, I'm, I'm just thinking back to we looked at some fesh school rules the other day, which were kind of like being imposed on the events to try and make them safer and better for the city. And one of them was that the fences shouldn't just walk in and cleave straight at each other like peasants. Mm-hmm. And yeah, just interesting that it seems to be a, a metaphor that's used for just walking up and hitting a dude. So... A couple, a couple things about um, schlechter Pauenschlag, or uh, simple or straight. What is it? Um, peasant hit. Uh, this to me is is not really a very useful phrase because everybody has a different idea of what um, a simple peasant hit is. I've had like several people come up to me and be like, "Oh, it's so simple," you know. It, they're 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 being as clear as possible. A peasant hit is this, and they'll all say like different things for what it is. Um, <laughs> so when whenever pe- people say like, "Oh, it's so simple," and then they all are saying different things, you know, something's not actually that simple. Or that the secret and hidden words worked. Yeah, exactly. As far as what Michael was saying about uh, schlecht and straight. If it is so, if it is straight, which I'm not 100% convinced it is, it might be because I definitely have seen other sources where they use schlecht to means to to literally mean straight, but that still doesn't give us like an angle. Does that mean it's like straight down from above or a straight line like from the shoulder? Or you know, you can do a straight cut that's from like whatever angle you want, and then if it's if it just means simple, then like. The jury's out. Like it could mean whatever, whatever, whatever uh, the reader's preconceived notion is is what it means. Should we take a poll about what angle everyone thinks the best one is for the Zarnhow? About like right here, right now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, sure. <laughs> what do you do, Steve? Um, I usually do it like um, a steep angle, like steeper than forty-five, but not totally vertical. But like, I I don't really think it matters too much. I just I just think whatever gets you there, like will work. Sorry, I think vertical cuts are sort of impossible. Uh, they're an ideal more than a fact. But I do maybe a, a steep diagonal cut for the most part. My goal is usually to get on top of my opponent's sword with whatever angle gets me there best. I don't want to plow into the side of it. Yeah, I think plowing into the side of it is starting to um, spill over into different use cases. But I'm not I'm not totally married to any one angle. But I guess if I had to choose, it would be like steep diagonal. I try for vertical, but it doesn't. Always, it never actually comes out vertical. Well, you can't do it purely vertical because you have to start from above on the right to fit the text. Yeah, right? exactly. Um, <laughs> I also am in the uh, relatively vertical, um, like close to vertical steep angle club. One of the things I find interesting about that and the general idea that that makes it about whose sword ends up on top is that it explains pretty much by itself why you can't do this action if you cut first. If I cut first on this steep angle and they react to me, they're going to end up on top of me. It doesn't matter what my angle was. So 
cutting second then becomes actually important to getting on top of their sword, if that's something you care about for the outcome of this action. Definitely. Uh, what angle do you cut at, Joey? Oh, oh, it's usually in diagonal. So I'm, I tried doing vertical cuts, but I'm really no fan of them. So usually diagonal and trying to land on top of the opponent's sword. Okay, like a steep diagonal, not like yeah, a forty-five it's... degree mayor despite the puffy fence. Well, <laughs> wow, <laughs> maybe sometimes. You know, um, I think Hans Miedel, um calls the Tsuanhou, um nothing else than a like bad. I think he actually says bad and um, peasant strike, um, but also that it's nothing than a strong Oberhau. So he kind of um, says that it's, yeah, it's an Oberhau. And, well, I interpret them as being, like, diagonal, maybe 45 degrees, and that's what I usually do. Not because I think about it, but because um, that's how I learned it. And, yeah. <laughs> uh, fun fact about Oberhau, uh, Meyer, to go back to that guy, Joachim Meyer, defines an Oberhau as being a vertical cut exclusively. So that's interesting in terms what? of interpretation. <laughs> yeah, so he says the Oberhau is another name for the Scheitelhau oh, and God. targets the top of the head. Um, and so when he, when he wants you to cut at diagonal, he says Zornhau. So his, his comments aren't necessarily going to clarify this discussion, but it's interesting to consider that in his time, at least, the default action was seen as being a vertical cut. Oh, that's shall cool. we um, shall we get into language games one second? Who here thinks that the Zorn How is a type of Oberhau? Yes. Well. Yeah. According to Maya. <laughs> Not according to Maya. Oh well. <laughs> yeah. um... I don't care about Meyer. <laughs> Meyer's Oberhau, yes. Well, if you go with thirty-two twenty-seven A, that there's only two kinds of cuts, up and down, then I would say yes, it's down. Yeah, it's an, yeah. Yeah, okay. We're never really given a clear explanation of what um, RDL considers an Oberhau to be, but in my head canon, yeah, a Zornhau is a special case of an Oberhau. Okay, and uh, the same with a Scheitelhau? Yeah. Clearly. And same a with a shield? The same cut. And a shield, yeah. Okay. Um, Hans Madel says that the Zorn is the secret name for the Oberhau. Right. He's all about them secret names. He Whereas uh, a Tverhau, is that up, down, middle? Well, it's, like, uh, middle uh, to it's both. It's up and down. If you're going for the ox or the plow, you know? You can definitely do descending line Tverhaus. It works really nicely for a lot of stuff. I think we, when we talked about, um, when we talked about like, how you define these cuts and like, it, like they kind of spill into each other. I'm using that term a lot, spill into, but they kind of uh, overlap in um, in form when you get to like the different angles. But I don't think I don't think anyone here would argue that if you angle a sferhau a little bit upwards or downwards, then it becomes not a sferhau anymore. Okay. And anyway, this is this is me just going off on a tangent. Sorry, guys. So here's a different tangent. Um which is a classic question about the Zornhau, do you need to step for this action? Well, I mean, the general lessons say that you step with every cut, right? So you have to step. 
Ah, but they say that you step if you're going to let your, your point do its proper path down by your leg uh, in front of your foot. And here you're not doing that. You're keeping your point in front of their chest. Yeah, but only because you hit their sword, right? Does it say that? <laughs> uh, it, it says that you hit their sword. It doesn't say that their sword. Should there. we talk about targeting for the turn now? Let's do this. Let's talk about the step first, and then we'll talk about targeting. So I say no, you don't have to step. And part of the reason that for that is because stepping while well, stepping forward, if you do this in actual fencing, it gets you way too close to set up a thrust. So just practical reasons uh, for that. But it still, I suppose, leaves the possibility that you could step backwards. Step sideways sometimes. When Dustin Reagan did his video series trying to replicate exactly the Goliath illustrations, he did stepping backwards for the Zornhow. I can see stepping backwards. To get the same foot arrangement. Yeah. If somebody did a Zornhow stepping backwards, I wouldn't say it's not a Zornhow. Personally, I, I prefer no step and then step with um, your follow-up action. But I also mostly prefer no step. Um, the way I look at it a lot of the time is that stepping stepping is important for proactive actions where you're initiating towards them because you're going to need to close distance ideally. And, well, ideally you wouldn't need to close distance, you'll just be close enough to hit them, but in practice you're going to need to close distance because they'll have hit you first otherwise. So when they're closing distance by cutting at you, you can just stay still and you move faster and stay stronger by doing so. Cool. Yeah. So, so you're doing this angry cut. Would you be left foot forward throughout then? Generally, all yeah. Generally, I mean, I think the way I showed this in the illustrated ring is that the the cut is done left foot forward, and then you can step through to plant the point uh, as you shoot the point out, or you can step through with your abnamen uh, if you want to. Cool. Yeah. It doesn't. For the record, it doesn't give any um, indication of footwork. So it doesn't even say which foot to start forward with in uh, the gloss. That's true, it doesn't. Which is kind of a deviation from the other ones. Usually it's, it tells you to um, place or set the left foot forward. Yeah, and, and would you kind of generate power with a, with a hip twist then, T? Yeah, pretty much. If you can't do like a, a drop step. So hip twist, um, slight advance to the left foot, and the fact that I'm dropping down on top of their sword means there isn't actually much power requirement. Like, you can always drop your weight and generate power that way if you need to. Yeah. If you drop a hip twist and a little bit of a shift to the left foot, you generate actually a pretty ludicrous amount of power. And because you're coming on top of the weak of their sword or the strong of yours, you don't have... It's very, very difficult for them to provide resistance against the action. Now, should we move on to the next couple of lines? We've spent enough time on this. Well, so let's get back to targeting the Zornhau, because yeah. I think that's something that's not always clear to people. And leads into the next few, right? Which is the whole idea of setting upon, and the fact that there's no implication throughout this entire section that your Zornhau is trying to hit your is trying to hit your opponent with your edge, right? So, and this was the interpretation that I learned when I was starting out was that your main intent is to cleave your opponent's shoulder or whatever, and the thrust is a backup plan in case the cut fails. But what the gloss is saying fairly clearly for the, as far as clarity in the gloss is that your whole plan is to get your point in front of their face or chest so you can thrust or threaten them and uh ringek combines all the different thrusting words um and says shoot the point forward and threaten to stab him so the idea is not to 
be cleaving at all. The idea is a forceful cutting action that puts your sword in a position where it can stab, and then you stab if you can. Or that's how I read it. Anyone else? I broadly agree. I find that in practice, this depends a lot on what exactly my opponent is doing. If they're cutting from a bit further away, straight down, then or in a relatively straight cut, then I'll get the point in. Cutting from a little bit, if they take a bigger step in their cut, then they're going to either step onto my point directly, or they're going to end up getting hit in the like side of the head or the shoulder by the cut as it comes down before the point can come online. But that's not me changing what I'm doing to change those outcomes. That's the exact way they're moving, changing. Yeah, I think that they like by the letter of the text, Zornhow is a stab. But if you're in a real life situation, you know, or not a real life, but a fencing situation, hitting the person on the head with this action is not an undesirable outcome. It just means that you are a little bit closer than what is ideal for the Zornhow. No, and it, it definitely does come up in the messiness of fencing that you'll do a counter cut that lands straight away. Right. But I think that, I don't know, mentally, I think I did uh, differentiate between the Zornhow ort and the Zornhow, where the Zornhow's the cut component of it, and then the the point is the, the thrust that follows up. Isn't there a, isn't there someone that says Zorn uh, ort? So. No, how? So that's another source in in uh, later sources. So the the word Zornort uh, does come up. I think it's in a lot of sources. Well, even in Danzig, it says that the Zornhaus point does the countering, not that the Zornhau itself does the countering. Right, but it says Rathu point. It says Rathu point. It doesn't say Rath point. I think Dresden might be the first one that says Zornort. It does. Okay. Yes, Dresden does say that. I'm not sure of any 15th century sources that do, unless it's like Faulkner. Yeah, I, I was thinking maybe Faulkner, but I'm not sure. I don't, I don't uh, remember off the top of my head. So certainly, yeah, Hans Madel, I'm pretty sure, says, or Hans Madel has it as an actual guard. Jörg Wilhelm definitely talks about it. And then we can kind of get into the question of how can you, if you're cutting with straight arms, which is what it tells you to do in the, the general fencing, I believe then how can you shoot the point having beaten their sword? And when we see illustrations by, I think it's the Paulus Cal one, then the illustrations of this situation are with quite tucked in elbows, aren't they? Mm -hmm. T-Rex cutting, short arm cutting. And that's my preferred way of doing it. I think otherwise shooting the point requires a step, which some people can do better than others. I, I find that I like it more when I don't have to step, so I nail those a bit. I don't like to ever do the um, the tucked in arms. I don't think that's good ever. I always do it extended, and I uh, yeah. I find that even without like, um, especially for Ringek, who doesn't necessarily imply that you're going to shoot the point to reach the target. Um, I think you can do something fairly effective, cutting with pretty extended arms, and then kind of pushing the hands that little bit out, and maybe shifting the body weight a bit forward taking a step if you need to, but generally just kind of you can create some forward pressure through an extension action even if you've cut with fairly straight arms which you can use to uh, how does Ringak put it um, shoot in the point forward long to his face and threaten to stab yeah yeah. it's interesting because it differentiates shooting the point forward and actually stabbing Yeah, if the is shooting the... is merely a threat 
Is this where the the half an L stuff comes in in three two three seven eight, or is that just me getting the wrong end of the stick? Let me look. It's either here or in the general instructions. I think it's in the general instructions offhand. But that's cool. uh, so that would be. Oh, it isn't in the Zornhelm. He says, um, your point should always seek your opponent's breast, turning and positioning itself against it, as is written better further on. And your point, as soon as it comes upon another's sword, should never be more than three hands breadths, which usually gets translated as half an L, um, away from his face or breast, and take care that it will arrive on the most direct path and not travel widely around so that your opponent cannot come first. Wow, I remember the thing. Yeah. <laughs> And that's related to the idea of continual movement. Yeah, but but to me, like if you if you did that cut with super shortened arms, then you probably have your point further away than that. It depends. I mean, if you're uh, it, it, that to me is a big distance question. Uh, yeah. Like if you're close enough to where your opponent thinks they can cut you, then you may may be too far away where you can actually extend your arms with long point in front of yourself. In which case, if you want to do this play, you need to tuck your arms a little bit, or you need to do a different play that involves them being closer. So to me, the application of this is an opponent who either wants to threaten you with long point, to cut to long point, or who is planning to cut and then step in any other way. Uh, but someone who's playing a longer distance game to begin with. I, I would say, yeah. Um, if, if somebody's close enough to hit you with the edge of their sword with a step, then uh, the Zornhaus is kind of out of play unless A, you want to take a step back with it, or B, you do it as more of an attack on prep where you're really just getting the point in there and stabbing them as they come in. But there's a question as to whether or not um, it's still a Zornhau at that point. Yeah. yeah, yeah, Shooting the point requires a bit of distance pretty much all the time. Well, so if you envision somebody... Um, about to cut in with a with a cut before they've cut in you're still at a distance where you can without a cut extend your point and it'll be in front of their head or in front of their face so if as they're stepping in you just put your point there and let them jump into it then that's kind of what i'm talking about with uh with that distance so you can stab them at that distance but then again the question is um is that still a Zornhau? And I, I totally agree. I was just pointing out that anytime you're trying to do that point shooting, you have to factor in there's at least one sword length between you and them, because otherwise you're you can't do that anymore. So if they're beyond a particular closeness, then your point is no longer really an option. Sure. Yeah. Or at least it's not an option in an extended way. So you you do it to Fairhow instead. Yeah. The for the idea of um, uh, when they're stepping in with their cut, um, it's worth noting that a long passing step, as a lot of people do with their cuts, essentially has two sort of stages to it. Um, the first kind, you can kind of think of it as the first one is when the feet come together, and the second one is when the foot which was behind goes in front, right? So you have these two parts to the cut. And if they're, there's a sort of middle distance where if somebody does their cut, as they take their step, you can cut down without stepping during the first half of it. And then as they finish their step, they'll step onto the point of your sword, which has now been placed into place. So their sword can come out at the beginning, you cut onto their sword, and then as they finish their step, they land on your point. 
and it's a very particular distance bracket. Would you call that a Zornhow at that point? Pardon? Would you call that a Zornhow? Yes. Okay. Um, or is it more of an Unzetson? Uh, no, they're definitely cutting already, right? Well, Zornhow is an Unzetson, Michael. Right. Fair point. Um, but the point again with like, that spilling over. They're not. This isn't something I'm doing before they start to cut at all. This is that they are cutting. And if they're cut as far enough away that they're only going to be reaching me right at the end of it, then, or they're only going to be kind of coming in to threaten me at the end of the step, then I'll end up threatening them with the point in front of them. Whereas if there's a they're a little bit closer and they're going to hit me as they finish the step, then my point will hit them as they finish their step instead because I've displaced their point and put mine in there. And if they're close right. enough, they're going to hit me directly, then I'm going to end up hitting them with the edge. Um, and ideally, I wouldn't have been doing a Zorn at all at that range. I think that we're spilling into the next idea that I think we're going to talk about, which is, do they have to be soft at the sword when you shoot in the point? That's a big, that's a big question that is not, it does a point of disagreement in the classes, right? They, uh, they present two different stories, maybe. So my, my take on it, well, actually, first of all, I'll, I'll uh, say what it is. So in, um, I believe, uh, Danzig and Ringek, and Danzig and Ringek are at odds with uh, Lev and Nikolaus on this, where Danzig and Ringek, before you shoot the point with this, it says if they are then soft at the sword, whereas uh, Lev and Nikolaus omit that line. So my, it, it could be like, the, the simplest way to think about this is they just didn't write it in uh, Lev and Nikolaus. They just decided to leave it out for whatever reason. Personally, I think it was it's it's a intentional thing, and uh, the Lev version is is actually describing a di different action. Does anybody else want to jump in on this? So I think it's interesting that because the way I think it, it's interesting because. It requires you to think about Fulin in different ways, depending on what your interpretation is. Or your interpretation suggests how you think about Fulin. Because what does it mean to be soft on the sword is really the core question there. And for some people, that what that line evokes is that you enter the bind and you have to pause and ascertain your opponent's intention before continuing with your action. Um, and that's not the way 3227A defines Fulin. Um, which is instead that you sh what it says is that you need to uh, perform an action and judge how your opponent responds to it. So you can think of it as active listening versus passive listening, maybe. Um, that when you reach the bind, the way you feel your opponent's intention is by attacking them and seeing how they respond. So if your opponent parries your attack, that means that they're hard. And if your opponent gets hit, that means that they're soft. So in that case, you could look at the line about your opponent being soft on the sword in Ringek and Danzig as being an extraneous detail that doesn't contribute to the way the play is performed, but merely a statement that when you get in and you shoot the point, um, if your opponent is soft on the sword, then your point gets shot. And the follow-on action of the Abnehmen is what you should do if your stab fails not if you feel into the bind and sense some hardness there. Yeah, I, I think that's how I learned it. Well, the follow-on action of Abnehmen is interestingly different between the glosses, and we should get into that. And we'll get to, get that. to that, that question later. So 
to to go off of what what Michael was saying about three two two seven a, I think, and how it defines soft and hard um, as you attack, and if your attack lands, and obviously they're soft. I think that um, they're, the Danzig and the Lev are giving two different uh, kind of ideas of, of this, and neither of them are really inconsistent with that. I think Lev is uh, the more basic as far as being close to it. So I think for Lev, you're just cutting and shooting in the point, and then if it lands, great. If not, you do the Abnehmen or the Winding, which we'll talk about later. And for Danzig, it's similar, but there's two different stages. So instead of going straight for the for the for the throat, I guess for the stab, you cut into the to the um, you cut into their sword, and then if they have parried right away, then you do the you go to the winding. But if they're soft, then you just so okay you cut in and you still go forward no matter what. If you go forward, then they were soft, and you don't have to do the winding. But then if they parry as you're coming in, then you do the abnamen. So it's just two stages of. Okay, so, so this is like a, an eyes open versus an eyes closed distinction? Pretty much, yeah. Kind of, yeah. yeah. I think both of them are... Yeah, okay, I'll say yes. So, so my question would be, are you, are you doing this as two actions, or are you judging it as two actions? Meaning, well, so, so the, the, the distinction would be, what are you doing in between the cut and the thrust? Yeah, um, that's a... That's a Good question. I think that for Lev, you're definitely doing it in one action. I think for the Danzig, I wouldn't say it's two actions, but I would say it's more than one. And I would say that you're taking a little bit more time to figure out what's going on. And at that time, it gives your opponent a chance to like respond. and, and uh... my, my gut instinct is that if you're doing a proper in inverted commas uh cut down then it's always going to be two actions because you've got a cut and then you're in a retractive position that you then extend from if you're doing a fully extended cut then it's a little bit more wishy-washy as a as steve would say it spills over from being the cut into the thrust so one one aspect of this is actually that if you're trying to, if your cut is sweeping downwards and you're ending up on top of their sword, their sword doesn't really provide any resistance to you directly. So your sword doesn't get stopped by theirs, which means you have to consciously stop it, potentially, if you're focusing on making the first part more of a cut, more of a kind of cleaving downwards action. And then because of that, you'd have to pause for a moment just to like realign your muscles and your your ability to project force. Whereas for... Alternatively, you can essentially throw the kind of throw the point straight out directly, so the sword rotates forward, but it's not really trying to drive downwards in any way. And then you can go directly to the directly to the point going in without the motion really needing to stop or change. And so possibly it's just how you approach that, whether you're focusing on the the more you focus on the cut being a cut, like a, a cleaving kind of action then the more you need to have a moment to pause and regroup and redirect your body to start to extend out into extend the point out and shoot the point out instead and i'd i'd also say that the the more you're focused on the thrust side of this this equation then the more dangerous it becomes in fencing 
because the less you're putting into making sure that you've stopped their attack, and the more likely you are to get a simultaneous hit land. Yeah, I have a pet theory that the the use of Howen uh, House Station Schnitt in the glosses isn't actually intended to imply like a terminal effect, but it's about a way of moving the sword. So Howen is mostly about rotational movements. Uh, Stish is about linear movements, and then Schnitt is about movements kind of in the line of the crossguard. Transverse movements, I guess. And so from that perspective, you can kind of howl from the shoulder and rotate it without it ever really being a cut that will cleave or cut through something. But it's rotating the point in and dropping the point on to whatever your target is uh, directly. On, on that note, it's also important to note that when you're actually cleaving your opponent, it doesn't say how in the gloss, it says schlug. So how uh, we could almost say implies not cutting. Or not landing your cut. This is yeah. also consistent with techniques like Sturzhau, which really land much more naturally if you try and if you rotate the point in. So uh, my take on uh, what what Michael said to to um, expand on that, I guess. So it never says hit with a howl in the uh, gloss. It says you do a howl and then you either do slog with it, strike with it, or you stish with it. So a howl is the motion that you do, and with that motion, you can either strike or you can stab. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. I'll buy that. Uh, should we wrap up here, having done a third of the content that we were expecting <laughs> to? <laughs> I really didn't think this would take as long as it did. This is exactly what I expected, actually. I, I might have another sentence. <laughs> yeah, probably sure, not please. a sentence. Maybe a minute. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So in the Ringeck version, in the Dresden version, I was just looking at the translation. Uh, I think the last line um, threatened to stab him. I, I think the, the Dresden version doesn't necessarily mean threatened to stab him. I think what they say is um, dare to stab him or maybe have the courage to stab him. I don't think the Trau is meant as um, threaten, but to actually have the courage to stab. So the the translation right now kind of implies that you're not stabbing Landing, at all. You're finishing. just yeah, just you're just fainting or maybe just threatening to. But I think definitely in the Dresden one, it's it's not in the Glasgow one. Oh, sorry, not Glasgow. It's not in the Rostock one because there they actually say draw, um, threaten. But the Dresden version says treu or trau, and that's definitely not threaten that's having courage or daring to so i think that's that, the um, same word in the title isn't it no the dresden zettel says throughout dr o with umlaut yeah, w i i think the, the dresden zettel says draw um try it draw, draw it that's pretty close to draw and to threaten but the and way rostock says throw it yeah and i think that's trauen and that means Hmm, yeah, daring, or yeah, having the courage to do something. They're backwards. I always thought they were the, just the same word, just spelled different. It could be. It, it, it could be, but it's pretty close to trauen. And it's not really close to drawen. Yeah, it's just, maybe it's just a theory, but yeah. So my question for you was would, was, uh, would be, 
would you read the title that way? Because the title uses that word in every version. Um, so should we understand the title to me not mean the wrath you point threatens him, but something different? Wow. So um, maybe it's um, depending on the way it is spelled, probably. So I, I was just looking up the word trauen and it did exist, or maybe it, it, it starts to exist somewhere in the Middle High German era. So it's definitely in the um, early New High German one as well. So you could probably um, read it as hmm, daring or having the courage to, depending on how it's spelled. It's quite difficult to to decide or to interpret it, but I think at least in some interpretation or in some manuscripts and some texts, you can read it as Trauen. I, I'm just looking up a um, different version of the Zettel, but I'm not sure yet. I'll, I'll have to look at it. That's that's really interesting. Um, I'd like to hear more about that next time. Okay. Because that has implications across all the glasses. Yeah, and oh, it also has implications about the absets and plays from Plough where it would be if he has the courage to stab you below. Oh, now that I like. That's really nice. Does it say that in Uberlafen also? Uh, maybe it's Uberlafen. Oh, it's the or... Squinter section I'm looking at, actually. What about the Tzerhel? Huh. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. We should definitely... I, I think we found some homework for the next week, guys. If he has the courage. Brilliant. Uh, has anybody got anything? Nice, Joey. That's awesome. Has anybody got anything else to add before we wrap up the show? No? Okay. Well, thank you very much for listening. This has been Fencing by the Book, Episode 6, with our panel of Johanna Hopfgardner, Michael Chidester, Stephen Cheney, and T. Key. And I've been your host, Michael Smorich. Thank you for listening. Bye. Bye.